0: Please turn with me, if you have a Bible with you, to to Luke chapter 23. Happy Good Friday! I think, like Luke Cole says, it's okay. Sorry, the children are welcome to be dismissed into the the children's ministry. Luke chapter twenty-three. Today we celebrate what is traditionally called Good Friday. And we're going to look at one of the last sayings that Jesus spoke while he was nailed to the cross, moments before he died. Um, scripture records only seven brief sayings from our Savior on the cross. And each of these sayings are rich with significance, and every one of them reveal that Christ remained sovereign and in control even as he hung on the cross. And these precious words explain exactly why Jesus came into this world, why he did what he did, and why he died as he he died. So in order for us to fully grasp the importance of Jesus' final words, we must remember where they were said. And Jesus uttered these last words not from a, a hospital bed, while he was comfortably ending his days in a, in a frail care center. But Jesus uttered these precious and powerful words as he was being crucified by Roman soldiers at the insistence of the, the Jewish religious leaders. And according to journalist and author Jim Bishop, the original inventors of the crucifixion designed it to be a way to inflict the maximum amount of pain on a victim before death. And in his book, he he writes the following, and I quote, They, the Romans, had tried death by spear, by boiling in oil, impalement, stoning, strangulation, drowning, burning, and all had been found to be too quick. They wanted a means of punishing criminals publicly and slowly. So they, the Romans, devised the cross... It was almost ideal, because in its original form, it was as slow as it was painful, and the condemned at the same time were placed in clear view of the people. A secondary consideration was nudity. This added to the shame of the evildoer, and at the same time made him even more helpless before the thousands of insects in the air. So the Romans adopted the cross as a means of deterring crime, and they had and they had faith in it in the cross. In time they reduced it to an exact science with a set of rules to be followed. So and as if crucifixion and flogging and, and the crowns of thorns that were thrust on Jesus' head weren't enough that horrible day, our Lord also endured bitter mocking words from the onlookers, the passers-by, from the religious leaders, and from the soldiers themselves. As Jesus stood broken and bruised and bleeding in that humiliating place, he heard every obscene and coarse comment that was ever devised by, by degraded minds, and it was aimed at him while he was hanging on the cross. Now in the midst of such punishment, most people would have retaliated, shouted abuses back at the crowd and shouted insults back, especially at the executioners. But their final words would be curses, full of anger and and bitter hatred, but not so with Jesus. His last seven sayings were anything but that. In fact, each of his words are packed with selfless promises, not only for you and for me, but even for those who brutalized and crucified him and mocked him on that day. With that context in mind, let's read Luke chapter 23 together from verse 39 to verse 43. Luke 23, verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Just remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray before we study God's word together. Father, we come to you this morning. Grateful people, Lord. We come to you this morning thankful for the cross that that you endured. We know, Lord, at any moment... You could have called the angels down from heaven and they would have delivered you. They would have punished those people that deserved to be punished, those who were inflicting pain upon you. We know you could have done that. But Lord, we today are grateful for the fact that you endured the cross. We are grateful, Lord, that you endured the the shame and the mocking and the pain so that you would firstly obey your Father's will, and secondly, Lord, earn our redemption. So Lord, this morning as we come to this passage, we pray, Father, teach us, show us the depths of your love for us. Reveal to us, Lord, again and again, our need for the gospel today, Lord, we do gather on, a, on this day, this auspicious day, not just to have a celebration, not just to have a festival for the sake of having a festival. We gather together today to remember, to remember what you have done for us. We pray, Lord, that the Spirit would teach us and show us and open our eyes, open our hearts to the fact that we needed you to hang on that cross. We needed you to suffer so that we could have eternal life. So Lord, we ask this morning that your spirit would be glorified here amongst us, that your spirit would glorify Jesus amongst us. And that through The word that is preached and through the singing and of the songs of the words that we have heard this morning. Through the reading of your word. Through the preaching of your word. Help us to respond the way you want us to. May we not leave here this morning without knowing, Lord, we have met with you. And without responding to the will of the Father. So, Lord, do your work amongst us. I pray that you would save those this morning that have not been saved, that don't know of your love for them. They don't know of the price that you paid for them on the cross. We pray for them this morning, Lord, that they would see their need for a Savior and call upon the name of Jesus. For those of us, Lord, who need to be comforted this morning, may we be reminded of the wonderful gospel, that perfect love that was shed for us. So speak to us this morning, we pray. For the sake of your name, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Herbert Lockyer wrote a a book titled, All the Last Words of Saints and Sinners. This book was published in 1969, and it is a book that is compiled with 700 quotes, and they're final quotes from from the famous people, from the the infamous people, and the aspiring figures of history. Quotes of people's last words. And here here are a few of them. This one is of Thomas Hobbes, who died in in 1679. He was one of the greatest British political philosophers, and he was an agnostic. He said, I say again, if I had the whole world at my disposal... I would give it to live one day. I'm about to take a leap into the dark. Another quote by Gabriel Mirabeau, who died in 1791. He was a political leader in the French Revolution, and he was an atheist. He said, Give me more opium, that I may not think of eternity and what is to come. Another quote by Sir Thomas Scott, who died in 1878. He wrote over 200 books and and booklets against Christianity. This is what he said. Until this moment, I thought there was neither a God nor hell. Now I know and feel that there are both. And I am doomed to perdition by the just judgment of the Almighty. Those are sad words. But insightful words into the last minutes of these people. But I wonder this morning, if someone was to record your last words before your death, what they would be. Think about that for a moment. What would be the last words that you speak before your, for your death? Well, this morning, we, we're going to look at two of the most dramatic and pow- powerful final words that were ever spoken by anybody. And these are words from the lips of Jesus Christ and words from the lips of the thief who was crucified next to him on the cross of Calvary. In the last hours of their their lives, the thief, the one thief professed his faith in Jesus as the Son of God, Savior of the world. We know Jesus spoke seven sayings from the cross that are recorded in the book of Luke But his first saying was a prayer, which is recorded in verse 34, in which our Lord said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they they do. And the passage we're looking at this morning is the answer to this prayer. The conversion of this repentant thief was the the first answer to this prayer that Jesus had prayed, and it shows how, how generously the Lord's Forgiveness was was given, was bestowed, um, for it was given to the most unlikely of re- recipients, to the thief. But to fully understand what happened in that conversion and the conversation between Jesus and this thief, we need to back up a bit and look at the context of this this text. And as we do, the first thing we should note is that the gospel writers tell us that Jesus was crucified between two thieves. In verse 33 and verse 34, it says, And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. So before we go any further in our study, we need to understand who they were, these thieves, and why they were being executed in the first place. So, my first point this morning is in verse 39 the reprobate. The reprobate. In this verse, we learn a little bit of the nature of these criminals who were crucified next to, to Jesus. Verse 39 says, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him. That's in the, the ESV. The King James Version says that these criminals were, were malefactors. Malefactors. And the word that Matthew uses to record the same event in Matthew 27 is, the word, is a different word. It's a word for thief. It's a word for robber. It's a word for, for bandit. And they were probably these thieves were probably members of an organized scheme to overthrow the, the Roman government. In fact, there's enough evidence, there's good reason to believe that these men were partners in crime with Barabbas, the man who was released instead of Jesus by Pontius Pilate. In, in Mark chapter 15, verse 7, it talks about Barabbas, and it talks about the companions he had. It says, And the man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. In other words, these men hanging next to Jesus were not first-time offenders who had made a couple of mistakes along the way. And got gotten caught. No, no, these were these were criminals, these were career criminals, these were murderers, they were they were thugs. And either of them could easily have been on Jerusalem's most wanted list. By the fact that they both initially used their, their dying strength to join in in taunting and, and mocking Jesus proves the, the wickedness of their their character. And Matthew says, just like the crowd of mockers who surrounded the cross, the robbers, it says in Matthew 27, who were crucified with him, also heaped insults on Jesus. Now the word that we translate as insults or abuse literally means blasphemy. In other words, these two men shouted harsh, perhaps even obscene, Insults, statements at Jesus while he was on the cross. In their dying misery, the last words that came out of their mouths were directed as curses and abuses at the Son of God. But in verse 39 here, in our passage, it says that one of the thieves continued his insults. Continued. And he said, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. It was a taunt. It was an insult. When he said this, notice Jesus was silent. Jesus didn't give any comeback. He didn't reply. And this is exactly what Isaiah said he would do. We read it this morning in Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Prophecy fulfilled. Notice, Jesus didn't answer the taunting questions that the first criminal had sarcastically posed at him. But secondly, look at verse 40 and verse 41. My second point is the rebuke. This leads to the second point, the rebuke. In verse 40 it says, the other did. The other criminal, the other thief he answered. Now in the Greek, the, the word other literally implies other of a different kind. So this thief was a different kind. This tells us that originally this man was shouting the same abuses. He was shouting the same insults with his partner in crime. And all the others, onlookers. And he was at that point the same as them. Nothing different. But now something has changed. Something has changed. He was becoming different. And we know he was because he told his compatriot, what's the matter with you? And he rebukes the other criminal. And he says to him, don't you fear God, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what we deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Something changed. By a miracle of God's grace, this man's heart was changed. And he realized that the man being crucified next to him was none other than the Lord of glory himself. In other words, there came a point when one thief's taunting and mocking and abuse turned to silence. And then the silence turned to awareness. And the awareness eventually turned to repentance. And friends, those of us who are born again, we can identify with that. We were exactly like this this dying thief. At one point, we were under the just condemnation of the law. We were like the the thief. We we mocked Jesus in in our lifestyle. We mocked Jesus in... Our decisions, we mocked Jesus in the way that we we thought and the way that we responded and the, the things that we we loved. We rebelled against Jesus in every way. The Bible says we were enemies of God. We had sinned against God, we had sinned against his law, we had fallen short of his glory. Perhaps we even outwardly and openly mocked God, much like those atheists we, we read about moments before. They died. We were rebels against God. We were rebels against His holiness. We were not interested in God or the things of God. But, thanks be to God, by a miracle of God's grace, our hearts were changed. And we realized that the one who was crucified was none other than the Lord of glory, just like the thief did. And notice in verse 42. My third point here, notice here, the request, the request of this thief. As he watched Jesus' suffering, as he watched all these abuses, as he saw Jesus patiently, never reviled, never insulting his tormentors, the thief began to see that the man on the cross was indeed who he claimed to be. And when he did, the thief turned to our Lord and and said the most important sentence of his life, probably his last words that he probably spoke Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The King James Version includes the word Lord. So it says, He said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you comest into thy kingdom. The word Lord is is significant. I'm not sure why the ESV leaves it out. But the word Lord in the Greek is kurios. It means supreme authority. It means our controller. It means God, master. I also want to point out here that the Greek here is in the imperfect tense. Now I'm giving you a bit of a Greek lesson this morning, I know, but it's important. Now the imperfect tense in Greek is used to repeat something over and over again. It's a repeated action. So this thief's request was repeated. It was spoken, not once, not twice. It was repeated more and more than, than once. As he saw Jesus' life, he prayed to the Lord, Remember me, Lord. Remember me. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It wasn't just a once-off little phrase that he spoke. This was a plea that was repeated over and over again. It was an incredible request. It wasn't just, by chance, Lord, if you, if you happen to go to heaven, remember me. This was a, a request of conviction. He recognized that he was a, a sinner. But now he also recognized that Jesus was indeed the true Savior that he claimed to be. He was the only master, and he was the one with all authority that could give him eternal life, that could open the doors to the heavenly kingdom. And he asked Christ to remember him. He said, Lord, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. I also want you to notice that, again, this wasn't a a plea for a present release or relief of his circumstances. And we we tend to think, well, naturally somebody would ask this question. Somebody would make this request. But this wasn't a request even for a little bit of power or a a position of of influence in his kingdom. This was a criminal who had repented. This was a man who who didn't want to, to be remembered by anything else. When he came to Jesus, he wanted to be just part of his kingdom. He wanted to be with Jesus. He wasn't treating Jesus like a, a little machine where you put money in and get something out. It wasn't a genie in a bottle and rubbing the, the, the genie and out pops a wish. This, this was a man who had a repentant heart. It was much like the prayer of the publican in, in Luke chapter 18. And he prayed, would not so much as Raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And notice this sinner, in the midst of everything that was going wrong, in the midst of everything that was wrong in his situation, he says, not if you have a kingdom, but when. This was a statement of faith. When. This was a belief. When you come into your kingdom, please remember me, Lord. Please remember me. A change had taken place over this thief's life. But Why? Why? I mean, other than the way Jesus responded to the crowd, what do you suppose it was that led this criminal to make this request? Well, I think there were a number of factors that we see here in this text. Of course, the first thing was the prayer that Jesus prayed. This thief could not forget these words Jesus prayed. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And this thief concluded that only a man who knew God could pray to the Father for the forgiveness of others. And that prayer probably pierced his, his conscience and helped him to see that, that he was one of these sinners that needed forgiveness. He needed this this peace that Jesus spoke of. But the second thing and the second factor, I think, was obviously the sign that was above Jesus' head. Remember that sign that Pontius Pilate wrote and put there. It said, this is the king of the Jews. Pilate had ordered the sign be written in three different languages and hung above Jesus' head. Now, it wasn't intended to be a a declaration of of truth. Rather, it was put there sarcastically to indicate that Jesus was being executed for treason, for, for claiming to be a king, for claiming to be above Caesar. But the criminal noticed the sign. He couldn't ignore it. He noticed and he began to sense that perhaps there was some truth in the sign, something was there. I mean, he came to believe that Jesus was indeed a king because he pleaded to the king. He pleaded to the master, Lord, <clears throat> remember me when you come into your kingdom. Think of it. This, this means that Pontius Pilate, in essence, he printed the first tract, the first gospel tract that spoke to this thief, that spoke to his heart. Now, Jesus was placed between the two criminals This man could hear what Jesus was saying. This man could hear Jesus' prayer clearly. He could see the sign above Jesus' head. He could look at our Lord hanging there and see on his his face his words and his expressions and his sincerity and his love, even while he was being mocked and scorned. But the third factor in this thief's decision might have been the onlookers themselves, the people that were responding to Jesus. And the thief probably had not ever met Jesus before until that day. And as they were being nailed to their crosses, he, he assumed that Jesus was just another criminal. The thief had no reason to believe he was in the presence of greatness. We don't see any of that in the, in the Scriptures. But then he heard the, the testimony of the crowd, and perhaps it was, An inadvertent testimony, but it was a testimony nonetheless. The crowd mocked in Matthew 27. They said, he saved others, but he can't save himself. That's recorded in Matthew 27, verse 42. But the words were shouted in defiance. The words were words of ridicule. But the thief may have wondered, what do these people mean? What do these people mean when they say he saved others? And as the mob chided Jesus for some of his other well-known sayings and tried to mock him because of the miracles that he wasn't performing on the cross, the thief must have pondered. He must have pondered. He must have thought about their, their mockery and began to realize that perhaps he was in the presence of a, of a Savior, someone who saved others. And think of what he did. Think of what the thief did I, I mean, he, he believed in Jesus at a time when it appeared that Jesus was entirely helpless to save anybody. It appeared. But in fact, he himself appeared to need saving. But Jesus hung as a helpless victim. Remember, he didn't appear as a king at all. He wore a crown of thorns again, an insult, a sarcastic comment, a taunt. He had been flogged. He had been beaten. His beard had been plucked out by the, the roots. His body was slumped over the nails. His nails ripping through his hands and, and his feet. His chin resting on his, on his chest. Except when he, he gathered enough strength to lift it so that, that he could breathe. This was a terrible sight. It was a pathetic sight. A weak man. And yet, for all of that, the thief believed. Despite what he saw, he had faith. He believed before the the darkness miraculously settled over the land. He believed before the the earthquake and before the the veil of the temple was torn in two. He believed without the evidence of the resurrection without the evidence of the ascension, without having seen Jesus walk on water, without having seen Jesus feed the, miracle, uh, the multitudes, without having seen Jesus turn water into wine, he believed. In spite of the crowd, in spite of the onlookers, in spite of the mockers, he believed. Think of this for a moment. Even his disciples Although they continued to love Jesus, their hopes for the kingdom were were shattered. And most of these disciples had gone into hiding. By contrast, the criminal looked at the man who was dying next to him and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Lord, remember me. You know, by all appearances... The kingdom was a thing of the past. The kingdom was finished. But he didn't care. He believed. I mean, he definitely went against the flow of popular opinion that day. But God's Holy Spirit was obviously at work in this man's life and and drew him to Jesus. And the thief responded by believing. Believing. He recognized that he was a sinner He recognized that he needed a savior. And he recognized that that savior was Jesus Christ, the man who was crucified next to him. And he asked Jesus to remember him when he came into his kingdom. We who are are born again can identify with that as well. We at one point in our lives have cried out to the Lord with similar words, maybe not the exact phrase, But similar words as this dying thief. Jesus, remember me. Maybe nothing has made sense in your life and the circumstances were were different. But despite those, at one point, you cried out, Lord, remember me. That is what is required if we ever stand any chance of entering into the kingdom of God. There's a belief, there's a faith in the one who shed his life And his blood on the cross. A belief in the Savior of the world. But lastly, look at the response. Look at the response in verse 43. Jesus responded with his second saying from the cross. And it was a cry of assurance. That's what Jesus said. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus promised the thief that he would be with him in paradise. Paradise is simply another word for heaven. This thief who had lived a life of sin and rebellion was now going to spend eternity in heaven because of his trust and his faith in Jesus. But more than just being in paradise, Jesus said to the thief, I tell you the truth, today... You will be with me in paradise. This promise is not only heaven, but it's in the presence of Jesus himself. This is not a get out of jail ticket. This is a promise that he would be with Jesus. I heard Louis Giglio say once, everybody wants to go to heaven, but not everybody wants Jesus. Of course we want to go to heaven. Who would not want to go to heaven? But that's where Jesus dwells, folks. That's where the glory of God is. And if we don't want that, we won't get heaven. This is where the man was destined to go. <coughs> he was going to be with Jesus. What an unspeakable joy. He was going to be with Jesus that very day. There was no purgatory mentioned here. It's never mentioned in the Bible, by the way. There wasn't any soul sleep here. There wasn't any limbo for who knows how long. The thief had, who had no opportunity even to do any good works. But this man went straight to paradise. He went straight to be with Jesus for all eternity. What a, what a day of contrast this must have been for, for the thief. His day began by being nailed to a cross. But the day ended by walking in the streets of glory with Jesus, his Savior. What a wonderful thought. Now obviously Jesus died before the thief, so we know Jesus was there to welcome him into paradise. Jesus was there to welcome him into the eternal dwelling place. And Spurgeon said once, that this man who was our Lord's last companion on earth, was his first companion at the gates of paradise. You know, I often speak to my children about, about heaven. And I ask them, why do you want to go to heaven? I've asked them that. Ask your children that when you get home. Why do you want to go to heaven? And often they would say to me, well, I want to be with you and mommy when, when I go to heaven. I mean, that's all good and well. But we want to go to heaven because that's where Jesus is. <laughs> we want to be with Jesus forever. Dwell with him forever and ever. I mean, that is what heaven is all about. And I want to emphasize this hope we have this morning. You know, in conclusion, we can, we can learn much, many things from the testimony of this, of this thief. But there's a main truth that I want to emphasize here this morning. And when we come to Jesus, when we ask his forgiveness, when we decide to become Christians, we are justified, the Bible says. We are saved by faith alone. We are saved by faith alone. Notice this criminal was hanging alongside Jesus. And he was ushered into paradise, not on the basis of anything that he had done. He had done nothing. He couldn't even take communion that that day or that weekend. He couldn't even get baptized if he wanted to. He had done nothing. He was justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Not by his works. Not by anything he could do. Otherwise, the Bible says he would have boasted. That's what the scriptures tell us. Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace we are saved through faith, not by works, lest we boast. He didn't. He had faith in Jesus Christ. He didn't have to wait a probation period where he proved himself worthy of the gift of eternal life. He was accepted into God's kingdom on the basis of what Christ had done, on the basis of his faith in what Christ was about to achieve for him. Faith in Christ alone. Arthur Pink has written several books, and a well-known Christian author, he wrote a book called The Seven Sayings of the Savior on the Cross. And he writes here about the thief. And he says, The thief could not walk in the paths of righteousness, for there was a nail through either foot. He could not perform any good works, for there was a nail through either hand he could not turn over a new leaf and live a better life for he was dying and this incident is is another shocking reminder that we are not saved by what we do but by our simple faith in what god has done in jesus christ and let it be a lesson to us today folks you know we come from many different backgrounds and many different denominations there are people that teach us we have to do something in order to be saved. Well, take a lesson from the thief on the cross this morning. We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. And this is not our own faith. This is faith that God gives us. Everything about our salvation is from God. Jonah, in the belly of the whale, could do nothing. And his his lesson that he learned is that salvation is of the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Even our own repentance is from the Lord. We don't bring anything in our hands when we come to Jesus. Why don't we bring our good works to Jesus to help pave our way to heaven? Why not? What's wrong with that? Well, since because we're all sinners, everything we touch is sinful. Everything we touch is contaminated by, by sin. Isaiah 64 tells us even our best deeds, even our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Perhaps we don't understand the severity of that. Filthy rags. Our works are as filthy rags. That word in the Old Testament in Isaiah is talking about a menstrual cloth. That filthy rag is a menstrual cloth that that a woman would would use during her, her period. I mean, that's a filthy rag. That's what that's how Jesus sees our good works. Anything we do is, in an attempt to get to heaven without Jesus Christ is like that filthy rag. Why would Jesus want that? Our works are as filthy rags. Because it simply means that we're putting our trust in ourselves. We're not putting our trust in what Jesus has done on the cross for us. We are substituting the work that Jesus has accomplished for us by our works. That's blasphemy, folks. And it will not be accepted by the God of this universe. And the main truth that we should understand from the cross is that we are saved by grace through faith alone. I mean, everything you look these days, you find religious leaders advocating a work, works-based religion. Live a good enough life. Live your best life now. This is not our best life now, Folks. You'll enter paradise if you do this, if you do that. Follow this formula. Give enough money. Now, not too long after the 9-11 terrorist attack on the Twin Towers in, in New York, I came across a YouTube video of the Larry King show. Maybe you've, you saw this. But his show that night included a panel of religious leaders that were discussing the, the Muslim faith. And there was a female Muslim cleric there. There was a liberal Roman Catholic priest. There was a Jewish rabbi. And there was a Christian pastor by the name of Max Lucado. Well, the discussion finally came down to the issue of works versus faith. And these religious leaders were discussing and they were debating, what is it that gets us into heaven? And the Muslims said that it was works. Works. The Jewish rabbi said it was works. (laughs) Even the Roman Catholic priest said, Look, as long as you live a good life, as long as you do good things, then no matter what faith you embrace, no matter what religion you practice, you are on the same train bound for heaven. It was at this point that Max Lucado wisely pointed to the the fallacy of this way of, of thinking. This is what he said. I believe the Bible teaches that we are saved by faith in Jesus alone, not by works. And by the way, I want to point out that it was a work-based salvation philosophy that led those fanatics to fly their planes into the Twin Towers. Their faith in works told them that if they did this, they would be assured of paradise, jihad. That's what it teaches. The experience of this thief is really a perfect proof text for us this morning in the whole scriptures that point to this truth. We are not saved by our works, but by grace through faith in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Salvation, eternal life in paradise with God is is a free gift to all who will in faith accept it. We come now to remind ourselves of this foundational truth, that Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, the only one able to do so, died on the cross in our place. He took our sin. He took our punishment on Himself that, that awful day. But the entire message of the gospel revolves around one Unique, historical event. It really happened. The whole gospel is centered around the the sacrificial death of of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. It was sacrificial in every sense of the word. Because it involved the offer of of God's only son. In a most cruel and painful way. The cross has a different meaning for different people. I, I get that. I understand that. Even the scriptures tell us that it is a stumbling block to the Jews and it is foolishness to the Gentiles. But to us who believe, the cross is our only hope. It is the only power unto salvation. We are guilty of rebellion against God. We deserve to die. While we were yet sinners, the Bible says, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, we deserved the just judgment of God. But Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, took our place on the cross that we might be freed from the sentence of death, that we may be set free. Christ paid a great price for our redemption, and let's never forget that. The price was the most horrible form of execution ever to be devised. Even to the Romans, it was so shameful that they wouldn't even allow their own citizens to be crucified. The crucifixion was reserved for, for slaves, it was reserved for criminals. But it was God's chosen way of salvation. Christ died for you, He died for me, He was our substitute. We should have been on that cross just like Barabbas. But he died instead of us so that we might not have to die for our own sins. You know, in the Philippines, there's a, there's a festival around Easter where people take up their own cross, a literal cross, and they get nailed to their cross. They, they take some beating and they get nailed to their cross in an effort to, to pay for their own sins. And they don't, Die on that cross. They, they're taken down after, after half an hour. It's too much for them to bear. It's too much suffering for them to bear. But nonetheless, they, they do this every single year. The whole parade through the, the streets and then crucify themselves to a cross in an attempt to pay for their own sins. We cannot do this. We cannot pay for our sins on this earth. If we reject the way that God has given to us, we will pay for our sins in the lake of fire. While we're on this earth, we need to embrace our substitute. We need to embrace the cross. We need to embrace what Jesus has done for us. But he also died as our representative. Let's not forget that. So that when he died, we died with him. Jesus Christ shed his blood to to pay the penalty for our sin and for our forgiveness. On Sunday morning, we're having a baptism service. And I've been spending some time with the candidates and talking to them about their salvation. And every single one of them understand what they are doing. They are identifying with Christ. As they go under the water, they identify with the death of Christ. They understand that is a picture of the death of Jesus. And as they raised up out of the water, they understand that that is a picture of the resurrection of Jesus. And they identify with that. And they agree that Christ did this for us. When he died, we die with him. We become his slaves, slaves to righteousness. We have a good master. We have a good master who gave his life for his sheep. And I hope that today, if you're not a Christian, if you've never personally reached out to Jesus as the thief did, well, I hope and pray that as you've listened, you've come to see that not only did Jesus die for you, but that you needed him to die for you. There is no other way. and We all have a choice to make. We can either accept Jesus like the thief did on the one side or we can reject Jesus like the other thief did on the other side. And the truth is those thieves will be separated forever. <coughs> One in heaven and the other thief in hell. Because of the choice that they each made. The thing that has separated them was not their the degree of wickedness. They were both wicked. They both deserved to die. They were both murderers. They are separated today because one decided to call on Jesus for help and the other decided to reject Him. One believed and the other mocked. What about you this morning as we sit, as we get ready to to pray? Where are you in your relationship with God? And I understand today is the Easter weekend and it's tradition for or people to come to church on an Easter weekend, but maybe you're not right with God. Maybe your faith is in, in a person. Maybe your faith is in a religion. Maybe your faith is in a, in a church and you've been let down. Maybe your faith is in your husband. Maybe your faith is in your wife. Maybe your faith is in your children. Maybe your faith is in your career and you've been let down. Are you right with God this morning? In Hebrews chapter two, verse three says, How shall we escape if we ignore such great a salvation? Jesus died on that cross to give us salvation, folks, folks. He didn't stay on that cross. He was resurrected from the grave three days later to prove that he has power over death, to prove that he is victorious, to prove that he has all authority. Jesus is alive today. He's not on a cross any longer. And how shall we escape if we ignore this great salvation which Jesus purchased with His blood? You won't escape. That's the answer to that question. You won't escape. You will still pay for your sins in a place called hell. A Christian those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, those of us who have believed like the thief did, I hope that you are encouraged this morning by the testimony of this this thief. Let's never forget, we were rebels against God, but in grace and mercy, when we looked to Christ and we asked Him to remember us, He said to us, just as He did to the thief, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. If you were to die today, take courage, find joy that you will be with your Redeemer. No greater place could you possibly be than with Jesus Christ. Can you say that for your children this morning? Can you say that for your rest of your family this morning? Do you have an assurance like this thief did? Do you have that assurance that Jesus gave this thief, today you will be with me in paradise? If you don't have that assurance this morning, I pray that today will be the day that you make right with God. Father, we come to you this morning. We submit ourselves to your sovereign rule over us. We submit to you as the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We come to you as our Redeemer, the one who has purchased our salvation through the the shed blood on the cross of Calvary. and We want to thank you for sending Jesus to do that. Thank you for sending Him to die on this cross. Thank you that Jesus didn't remain on that cross. He's not just another martyr. He's not just another religious leader, not an icon. But He is the resurrected Savior. And we know, Lord, that just as Paul told us, if Jesus didn't resurrect from the grave, our faith would be in vain. But we know that our faith is not in vain, Lord. Because we know three days later, he rose from the grave and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, where all authority belongs to him. This is the God we worship this morning. Thank you, Lord, for the promise of forgiveness. The promise of forgiveness of our sins and the promise of eternal life for all those who place their faith in your death, burial, and resurrection. Lord, our greatest problem has been taken care of this morning. We all have problems, Lord, we know that. But our greatest problem, our most urgent problem this morning has been taken care of by your Son, Jesus Christ. Those who believe in him will meet him in heaven when it is our time. But Lord, while we are still on this earth, we pray that we would not waste our lives. We pray that we would not be pursuing things that don't matter to you. That we would live our lives, Lord, as a reflection of your grace and gratefulness for what you have done for us. We know we didn't deserve this, Lord. We know that you could have just destroyed the whole world and started over again if you wanted to, Lord. We know you could have, just like you did with the flood in Noah's time. But rather, Lord, you sent your son, Jesus. Help us not to forget, Lord, we were, we were aliens. We were separated from you. We were rebels. But in your, in your grace, Lord, you changed us. And you showed us our need for a Savior. So, Lord, as we leave this morning, may the truth burn in our hearts. And may we give you the glory that you deserve. I pray this morning, Lord, that you would save the lost amongst us. Pray, Lord, that you would grant them faith to believe, just like you did with the thief on the cross. And nothing is impossible for you, Lord. With man, perhaps, but not with you, Lord. Nothing is impossible with you. We pray this morning that you grant faith and repentance to those that are amongst us who need to be saved. Change their hearts forever, Lord. Take away the the heart of stone that is resisting you this morning. and Give them a heart of flesh, Lord, where the seeds can grow deeper and deeper The seeds of the gospel will bear fruit, Lord, for your glory. Do they work amongst us, Lord. Not for for our name's sake. Not for any other reason, but for the sake of your Son. Who deserves all honor. Who deserves all glory this morning. For the sake of your Son. Who we worship. For the sake of your Son. Who gave his life for us. Honor your son this morning, dear Lord, by saving the last amongst us. May we ever give God the glory for what he has done for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.